Hello and welcome to Health Outreach Partners podcast series, The COVID-19 Pandemic and What It Taught Us. In this eight-part series, we'll hear from subject matter experts on the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly its effects on mental health and well-being. In each episode, you'll hear from different members of our healthcare workforce, community members, and Health Outreach Partners' own team about challenges and lessons learned from the pandemic. We appreciate the importance of reflection and recognition on the profound impacts COVID-19 and the pandemic response efforts have had on our lives and on our mental health. We are excited to share lessons learned from our esteemed guests and imagine a safer, healthier world for all. LGBT communities have historically faced distinct barriers and biases when accessing or receiving healthcare, especially during outbreaks or epidemics of various illnesses. It is important that we highlight the experiences of this community throughout the pandemic response and how the influence of past medical crises, such as the AIDS epidemic, have impacted their approach and perspectives during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we will be speaking with Perry Rhodes III for the Health Outreach Partners podcast series, What the COVID-19 Pandemic Taught Us. Perry is currently the lead senior consultant at Vicente Consulting, where he is working on California's Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative. Prior to this position, Perry managed the sexual health program at Alliance Health Project, or AHP, for 15 years. AHP is an LGBTQ mental health clinic with ancillary HIV, STD, hepatitis C, and COVID rapid testing services. AHP is within the University of California, San Francisco's network of ambulatory care clinics. Perry is a lifelong advocate for the LGBT community, and we are excited to speak with him today to learn more about the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on the LGBT community. Welcome, Perry. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much, Danielle. I'm so happy and honored to be here. Thank you so much to the health outreach partners for inviting me. Of course. So even before the pandemic, LGBTQ communities were affected by high rates of substance use and mental illness. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, three-fourths of LGBT people say worry and stress from the pandemic had a negative impact on their mental health compared to 49% of non-LGBTQ people. How have you noticed the impacts of stress, depression, and anxiety in your work with LGBTQ communities since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, you know, the sudden isolation caught so many off guard. For the LGBTQ community, uh, being already a sexual and gender minorities, those intersectional identities are also within um, the community. Those structural social determinants of health, such as, you know, housing, economic status, so many of those things were already ongoing issues. And then all of a sudden we were hit with food security issues, um, potential financial strain. Those are things that disproportionately uh, hit the LGBTQ community, uh, who many times, sometimes still suffer, although people have seen many more images and real life, you know, gays and lesbians, bisexuals within their their lives and seeing many more images on television and things like that. There are many that still do not have their family support, you know, in their lives. And so when March of 2020 happened, 
um, the, there was quite the pressure cooker. You know, imagine yourself being a young black or brown waiter <laughs> uh, at that at that time. And then very soon afterwards, um, not only were we dealing with uh, the COVID-19 epidemic, we were also dealing with racial protests. You know, we had Stop Asian Hate at the time, uh, Black Lives Matter. So I'm just saying all that to really kind of take us back into kind of this context uh, and how difficult it was in, the, in those dynamics. And then when I take it back to what that was like for the, in, in within the public health system that I was experiencing here in San Francisco and the mental health clinic that I was working at at the time that also had HIV testing, there was a, a moment of all of the services that were never shut down at once. We really tried to switch immediately into some telehealth services. But certainly the actual physical testing did really halt. So there was, you know, a real delay in those, uh, real delay in those services. And of course, those are totally uh, created for the mission of AHP was about the mental wellness and the, um, to really improve the lives of LGBTQ people. Uh, that's, that's its overall mission. So it, it was very painful at the time to, to in any way have to delay or, or, or halt services because it is an ongoing, is an ongoing need. One of the ways that we uh, also saw that it, at work was particularly, I, I got really concerned with the transgender community because uh, I don't know if everyone remembers, but one of the phrases that really popped up a lot at that time was, what was essential services? What was non-essential? Um, so that was really a bit of an excess of power at the time, real excess of power, because if something was considered, you know, essential, then it, you know, we were able to commit resources, time to it. It was non-essential. So uh, imagine uh, something like gender affirming care, which was a big part of LGBTQ work, uh, especially with IAHP at the time, Alliance Health Project. And for there to be any delay or halt in gender affirming care. Um, that was definitely one of the ways that we were seeing there really be a, a, a disparity in, within the LGBTQ community. And although I thought that there were, it was great to see the heroic efforts I saw within San Francisco to kind of keep, uh, keep things going. And I really felt like certainly not pointing a negative finger, but um, that was a really tough and difficult period for the LGBTQ community. Definitely. Definitely. And I feel like you already hit on this. So if you want to add any more, definitely go for it. You were talking about how culturally competent care for LGBTQ individuals, specifically for trans people within the community, is incredibly hard to find across the country. And luckily in San Francisco, there's a wide, wider range than mm -hmm. a lot of other cities. And COVID-19 made it even harder to access these services, as you were just saying. Mm -hmm. And one quarter of the LGBTQ households were unable to get prescription drugs or delayed addressing a major health issue during the pandemic compared to 8% of non-LGBTQ people. In addition to what you already said, how do you think delaying care affected the LGBTQ community during the pandemic? Well, yeah, all of the larger LGBTQ community, you know, everyone was definitely experiencing a delay in care. It's, it's important to recognize these disruptions and, and delays did not 
everyone did not experience it uh, evenly. Um, marginalized communities most certainly experience a tougher time. But I do want to make sure to point out some of the lessons that, although it might have been a painful lesson, <laughs> I think it's something that we can, can take and move forward. Bef prior to COVID-19, it was no secret within healthcare communities, mental health community, that going to brick and mortar places for black and brown folks, for transgender people was always, it was always a greater burden. Um, the microaggressions that people experienced going to and from to healthcare was always a really, really difficult thing. So one of the things that happened during COVID-19 was much more engagement in telehealth services. And these telehealth services, uh, we really saw that there was a real increase uh, for individuals who were black and brown, individuals who were um, transgender. Uh, and we really saw an increase in um, their engagement uh, with mental health care. Yeah, it's incredible how many people start accessing telehealth services during the pandemic. Um, and hopefully that continues to increase access for people who find it harder, more difficult to go to those brick and mortar institutions. Yes, I mean, the community bonds that were forged, you know, during that time, um, I hope it is something that we can really grow from and, and uh, learn from because I, I just remember when we started to really see that there was an increase in, in, in uh, black and brown engagement with mental health services with, uh, with telehealth, uh, I, I tried to not to roll my eyes too much because I was like, oh, duh. You know, people for a long time <laughs> were saying that it was that it was really uh, frustrating to come into these offices, and I, I felt like there was really a lot of um, attitudes within you know some of the non nonprofit and for profit like kind of health clinics at the time, and engaging people just more so with with telehealth, and then all of a sudden everybody had to get on you know platforms like Zoom uh, and and Teams at work and things like that, and and they adapted, and uh, but. For, us, for so many uh, marginalized communities within the LGBT community, uh, you know, further marginalized communities, I should say, within the LGBT community, certainly started to experience some other path, another way for them to engage in services in a way where they could stay, still remain within the safety of their homes and just deal with less microaggressions to and from your know, uh, brick and mortar facilities. Definitely. And I think the privacy of it just the fact that so many things within the queer community in general, people want to keep private and that part of their life, they keep private. Some people obviously are more public, but I think it increased the safety around it because of the threat of violence that a lot of people within the community face, as you were saying, microaggressions, which can be um, minimal types of violence. It still mm -hmm. feels, it's still a type of violence, but not the physical violence that people can experience when they're out and about. So that telehealth service, as you were saying, to a lot of people who've been working in this, seems really obvious that it would be a service that's incredibly valuable and something that's needed. Well, I just want to touch on something, um, since we're talking so much about, you know, microaggressions and social engagement. You know, during COVID-19, another thing that really popped up was, you know, the people trying to create social bubbles, mm -hmm. you know, within their neighborhoods, which 
of course, and on on the the surface of that, that totally seems like something reasonable for people to do a a real coping mechanism for. But again, for LGBTQ people who were just kind of in the midst of navigating their sexual minority status or gender minority status, um, that was not necessarily such an easy thing to to navigate. Not everyone is necessarily out to all people in their lives. Not necessarily out um, to their neighbors. So some people really had some, some real struggles and difficulties while they were trying to engage with some of the people, you know, right around them, uh, even within people's households, some of the, some of that was very difficult. It's not unusual within an urban environment for people to have roommates that they may not be best friends with. <laughs> you know, they pay the bills together, but they don't necessarily uh, in, in, engage much. So they created a lot of just day-to-day stress for people. Not everybody within the same household agreed on what was safe uh, behavior, you know, outside of the home. They had necessarily already, and there was already real power dynamics between people who might uh, be heterosexual versus those who were sexual minorities within the home. Um, And how to really navigate and negotiate that, you know, during such a a stressful time. Um, So these were some of the real uh, just day-to-day stressors that people were we're really trying to figure out and navigate. And it was incredible to see how telehealth just became this much more flexible tool that people were able to, to use and engage. So to me, that's one of the lessons that I think that has really emerged from all of this and I hope stays with us. It doesn't mean that we won't continue to use brick and mortar services. We'll certainly have those, but I feel like we have something to really kind of supplement, you know, uh, us and to, to to kind of strategize how to fit into our 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 lives more so to kind of weave it into brick and more mortar services so that you can um, um, really address some of the anxieties that people experience just trying to navigate their lives. Yeah, hopefully people take those lessons really to heart in order to innovate services that we had before the pandemic. I think. As we may have discussed before, there's some like cognitive dissonance between before the pandemic and after is that people after, well, we're still in it, but Mm -hmm. people still think that they can go back to the way that it was before, but Mm -hmm. things have fundamentally changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It's really one of the things I, um, I I felt like (laughs) when, when, uh, after March 2020, I, w- I would say between just the remaining of that year, you started to see people fit into these two categories. You know, those who kind of understood that there were some fundamental changes that probably were not, you know, we were not going to kind of go back to. And those that were still fighting to try to make, you know, February 2020 the reality again. <laughs> uh, I think now people, because now I think it's a little clearer, you know, that we are just in a new landscape and it's a little less scary because we can, you know, kind of see now this this uh, new future. You see a lot more people kind of accepting that there's a lot of things that are going to be different and that some of it can be better. I think I, I still find in our work that there are those who are still struggling a lot with, you know, how to make things look pre-COVID rather than to kind of see the kind of new realities that we're facing and 
know, how to navigate in that new how to navigate in that new landscape. But I have to say, because I want to make sure I'm showing a lot of empathy here, <laughs> or because because it's you know it's easy to talk about this and and you know claim that someone's not seeing something, but you know when you're in the middle of it, like so many of the of public health people have been in the thick of this for you know now we're in twenty uh, late November, we're in November twenty uh, twenty two. You know um, it is really hard because. If anyone who's been working around public health people, you've been seeing just hair growing longer and the wrinkles setting in. And I mean, <laughs> it, has been, it has been really, really stressful. And they have not taken their foot off, off the gas. People have, have been, I, mean, um, I don't think a lot of people realize that people who were normally doing work in HIV or, or STDs or HCV, these were the same people who were uh, reassigned to, you know, working COVID and and um, providing COVID tests and and figuring all of that out. Those exact same people. So it was a real stretch. You know, they didn't they didn't bring in whole new staff. They were working with the same staff that had full time jobs before. Um, and and now they've had to integrate you know, not only that but also impacts um, and more uh, into the work now. Um, so staffing has been very hard for public health members, by the way, have that is filled with many LGBTQ members. You know, many of us are uh, work hard within the uh, public health realm and um, are really dealing with some ongoing uh, stressors. So I, I recognize why it's difficult for some people to see kind of something new because they have not left work. <laughs> Uh, it's like I was talking to some people from grad school where I went for my public health degree mm -hmm. is that for public health workers, it, it's not PTSD. It's just an ongoing yes. stress. Yes. Ongoing. Yes. Yes. And I, I really hope that we find a way to, you know, allow people to really hit a long pause button and, um, and get away and regroup for themselves. Uh, I feel like we have to also practice what we preach to the public. We've got to find ways to do it for ourselves as well. Definitely. I feel like all public health workers deserve like a one-year sabbatical. <laughs> I love that. I It would be great to find some way to make that true for everyone. I'll, I'll uh, figure it out. And let <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. If anybody could, it might be just you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> so you and I have both worked in HIV and AIDS work um, in the public health sector, and HIV is an pandemic, an epidemic that the LGBT community really took a lot of lessons from. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of older generations of people who experienced the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 1980s and the lackluster way that the government responded due to stigma. Um, how do you think living through the HIV and AIDS epidemic influenced the ways that LGBTQ communities in the Bay Area and the larger United States reacted? Well, you know, this is one of those, this is one of those um, times when I felt the the lessons that were learned, um, that were forged during the HIV AIDS crisis um, of the 80s 
90s. Not that it's not uh, ongoing, but we certainly have uh, changed the life trajectory for people since that time. Such community bonds and uh, organizational infrastructure was really built during that time. And I really saw us in able to take some advantage with that during this time. And to, uh, there was a, immediately a, a concern for each other in, in ways that helps us to hold each other accountable. So I, I want to um, kind of frame it that way. Um, because it's really coming from a, a place of, of love and concern because we've seen such devastation within the community. Uh, and even for some of the younger generation that may not have personally witnessed things, I think that they still, uh, once engaged in the community, uh, can really feel that legacy. Uh, it's certainly still a topic um, that, that, that that is going to be shared with them quite readily once they engage in the community. So um, I felt like that that was something we were able to kind of really build on um, and allowed us to be immediately sensitive in our language to each other. I felt like that was one of the, the, the best things about it. As we were trying to come up with, especially in this, the environment of 2020, the political environment of 2020 and 2021 uh, around the messaging for COVID-19 that we were seeing from our political leaders was absolutely ridiculous and polarizing. It, it, it was, it, it left me speechless to see, <laughs> uh, you know, just the breakdown of that. And so I was very grateful that within our community, though, we had extremely competent and capable people who were able to, you know, take that same information and give us advice in a much more culturally sensitive and competent way um, that we were able to. I felt like I found myself paying more attention to just what was going on locally and making decisions and navigating that and just really tuning down some of the national noise. I don't, I, I wonder, I'd love to kind of ask that question across a lot of people, like how were you really managing the information at the time so that you could just manage your own anxiety and what you were going to do once you stepped outside your door. So uh, I felt that some of our not just the local uh, leaders who were in office, but our, our long-term activists, people who were within the, within the LGBT community who were on social media, who were sharing information. You know, I thought that that was really extraordinary to see. You know, I think about people like Joe Hawkins, who is you know, one of the founding members of the LGBTQ community uh, center there in Oakland. He was constantly within his social media feed sharing what he could about what was going on, really helping us to analyze the information. That's the type of thing that I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about like this political leaders, but within the LGBT community, our, our, we had leaders there, our activists who helped trying to put uh, information forward. At our work, one of the things that we did was we created AHP and CHIL, which immediately put a just, you know, <laughs> online, you know, a way for us to, to build community together. Uh, we had people like Rodney Chester, who uh, was a, a, a great, I, I have a personal affection for Rodney Chester and everybody involved with Noah's Ark because it was the uh, first television series that centered around, you know, uh, black and brown gay people um, who, you know, joined us and was able to kind of draw community together online. That's what people really had. 
So there was there were great lessons at that time where we able, were able to rely on each other to um, discern information, but also just share our frustrations in a way that this you know made that day tolerable for us to kind of move forward. Yeah, I feel like there is a lot of community care in general. I feel like that's something that the LGBTQ community has learned from general isolation from whether it's family or society and that we know how to come together when things are difficult in order to share information, Mm -hmm. share resources, share whatever we have to give to others. Absolutely, absolutely. So on that same note, um, I have another question and I found this information really interesting because there was a lot of conversation around how Americans viewed health information about COVID versus, for example, um, countries in Asia or in Europe. There was a lot of individualization of health behavior and responsibility and whose responsibility it was to protect themselves and who it wasn't. Um, And I'm mainly thinking about the vaccine and also getting tested. And this also links to a lot of lessons learned from the HIV epidemic. And there's this information from the Kaiser Family Foundation that says that there are a greater share of LGBT adults um, seeing that getting the vaccine was a part of everyone's responsibility to protect the health of others, which was around 75% versus around 48% of non-LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And how did you see this perspective in action at work among your clients and within the community? You know, again, I, I really felt that the 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 bonds of that that again were emerged from the HIV AIDS crisis really carried over during this time in a way that made it easier for us to hold each other accountable. You know, I just thought that that was a really important thread that carried over uh, during this time. And, one of the ways that I, I felt like we saw it is just uh, one of the examples that I'm kind of drawing from is the way we kind of collectively within our own um, clinics, LGBTQ uh, clinics, but also sharing this information of how to uh, create safe protocols um, for us. Uh, and we did, it never had a feeling of coming from the top down, at least not in my uh, experience. I didn't, I felt like that everyone was able to kind of participate in creating a some type of protocol or structure uh, to, to keep everybody safe. And, and that's really, you know, how we did it within our clinic there at um, Lions Health Project, but I also felt like there was this real sharing of those protocols, you know, so that people could kind of tweak things uh, within their own facilities, uh, also advising people how to do things within their homes. We were getting so much different information. I mean, you remember how we were all wiping down our groceries at first, <laughs> you know, the, the arguments that were happening within people's households over food. I mean, who knows? You know, so I just felt like that we had to, it, it, was, it was important that we were able to just share information with each other, but I just thought that we had a lot more sensitive language at our fingertips. Um, so that we could be really careful when we were talking to uh, Black and Brown people who were gender non-conforming, talking to our uh, lesbian neighbors, talking to our gay neighbors, talking to our immigrant neighbors who were from the LGBTQ communities. I thought that that helped us to quickly create 
I know when we were working together with UCSF, getting to zero, also the getting to zero to community uh, over there in Oakland, you know, we kind of came together to create sexual health guidelines. And we were able to draw so much from um, existing protocols and from some of the different agencies to really formulate some helpful, useful information that we could disseminate out into the community and we and and we also had ways of sharing it so that we could make sure it was getting revised in a way getting information from community mem members before we released it out to the larger community so just so but we just had so many protocols already set up that were really built on you know hiv aids work um years before all those structures were already in place so we could do that pretty quickly and rapidly. Um, and that's what I really saw is that we were able to immediately just kind of learn from those lessons of, of how to create a, a community message, <laughs> something that was sensitive and culturally competent. Many of those things were forged during the HIV AIDS epidemic and just applied it during COVID. So that, that to me, that was one of the great things that we got to see. Yeah, I saw a lot of parallels between information that was shared about protecting yourself from um, contracting HIV and COVID, especially at the time, like when the pandemic first hit, I was living in New York and something that the Department of Health released about sexual health was just, it was so frank and honest mm -hmm. and realistic <laughs> that I felt it was, it was very refreshing having something like that come from the Department of Health. Um, yes, I saw that same um, one, actually, Danielle, that you mentioned. I know that San Francisco also tried to match that in frankness. And for me, that's what other people call frank. I call everyday language, <laughs> you know, where I'm from. <laughs> that's how we talk in our household. You know, we're just going to say what we're going to say. So um, I just really appreciate, you know, information that I can hear and immediately apply, you know. Uh, to my life because I know what you're talking about. And they, and they really did get into it. I mean, you were talking about glory holes. They were giving advice on porn. I mean, they were just getting right with it, like ways to keep you safe from COVID-19. These are things that you might need to consider. <laughs> so so I really, I, I appreciated it because that was very real for people. Yeah, I really liked it. The um, I think he's moved on to a different role, but the head of the HIV department at um, the New York Department of Health, Dimitri Deskalakis, I mean, mm -hmm. like, he's just so um, upfront, and as you were saying, Perry, using regular everyday language to talk about <laughs> sex, which I feel like um, some people at the Department of Health, it may have taken them aback because mm -hmm. they, they weren't used to it, but yes. I feel like people who've worked in HIV and AIDS, that's the language we're so used to and yes. something that's not taboo. And that's not something that we need to shy away from. Yeah, well, you know, the thing about what you just said is so important. Sometimes they just forget that the individuals at the point of contact with the, with, with the, the client, the consumer of these services, for us to effectively do that, we all had to get comfortable with discussing sex and the mechanics of sex. Um, that was a big part of public health. It's a huge part of public health. So it's always interesting to me to find these points where all of a sudden something that's very important to be able to do within, you know, within that client session um, interaction. At what point can do we lose that directness? 
you know, as as we kind of so-called go up in um, folks with uh, different levels of authority and in, in, in their communications, it's like no, they're they're you know, this is important for us to stay to stay extremely transparent and 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 continue to speak in ways that where the language remains accessible to everyone. I think that's the part that I think is really you can, you can really lose people. You know, when you start speaking in a way where they're not, it's not clear anymore what you mean. And people are savvy. They know, they understand what you're doing. And when you decide not to uh, be specific anymore, that is a strategy. They, they, you know, when you have, when you decided to obscure your language, <laughs> that means that you're not committing to something and people understand that they immediately pick up on it. Uh, and when, it, in terms of public health, I think it's important for us to really pay attention to that when we uh, decide to craft certain messages. Um, when people can tell that you're committing to something because you you stated it, you try to be as clear as possible. And then there are times when you can't be as committed to it, but be clear about it, be transparent about why. Um, I think people can really digest that and, and, and then apply it to their lives in the ways that fit them best. 100%, totally. So to wrap us up, are there any last pieces of information or ideas that you think would be important for our listeners to take away from our conversation? Well, you know, I just want to make sure to point out, like we talked about earlier, there are certain things that just emerged during that time, or we just started to, to see more value in during that time. Let me word it that way, because, you know, platforms like Zoom, telehealth, those things existed before. And also being able to find testing, HIV testing, STD testing online were things that certainly existed before. But we certainly saw some huge advantages, especially within the marginalized communities um, when it came to things about around testing as well. So people should just know that there, there, there are ways to get fast, safe, and discreet, you know, HIV, STD testing, you know, at-home testing. Um, so I wanted to just share some of the nonprofit services, like building healthy online communities. Uh, they have at-home HIV, STD, and PrEP testing that's called Take Me Home. Um, it is fast, free, discreet. It's available online. Uh, you can go to takemehome.org uh, for that. Always remember the importance of mental health services. And remember mental health, that doesn't mean that something is wrong with you. It's just maintenance. You know, um, it's great to be able to sometimes just have someone else help you sort things out and get another perspective. So remember that my LGBTQ uh, partners, you know, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Alliance Health Project is a wonderful resource. I know I'm biased. I used to work there for 15 years. Everyone there is still my, my friend. Uh, I love them all. Uh, but I will always promote Alliance Health Project uh, .ucsf.edu. Uh, please go there, check out all those different services. It'll be wonderful for you. Uh, they have brick and mortar services, but they also have some great telehealth services for you as well. Um, so please keep those resources in mind. Great. Thank you so much, Perry, for joining us today and for discussing this topic. Well, you know, Danielle, I just want to say from the very first time I saw your eyes right above this stack of books, <laughs> 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 it has been a joy to know you. So thank you so much for inviting me today. And I'm so excited to see your career flourish. Thank you, Perry.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Health Outreach Partners podcast, The COVID-19 Pandemic and What It Taught Us. This publication was supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration of the United States Department of Health and Human Services under grant number U3FCS4184801000, a national training and technical assistance cooperative agreement under American Rescue Plan Act funding in the amount of $211,821. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by, HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thank you.